Amen. Good morning. Good to see you here again. Great to be back with you after a week away. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, to the book of James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Hope that you've had a wonderful weekend, a restful weekend, and uh, that you have been prayerful for our church as we continue on in the search and the waiting for our next pastor and uh, praying also for this transitional time you know, over the last couple of weeks. We've had an opportunity through myself and Dr. Rice to come up and just talk for at least two weeks about what it means to be a healthy church and what it means to be a healthy church member. I uh, just want to underscore again today that every single one of us in this body has a vital role to play. The Apostle Paul talks about the body of Christ and the various members that are in the body of Christ, and it's very, very clear that every single member of the church is an essential member of the church and has a vital function in the church. And so I want you to be praying and thinking about how best you can serve the Lord here in our church, and then also that you're inviting friends, that you're attending, that we're giving of our time, our energy, and our resources. Let's do everything we can for the kingdom as we continue to prepare and to wait. James chapter 3, we'll pick back up this morning in our study through the book of James, and we turn to chapter 3 to a passage of Scripture where now he gives a topic that he's been flirting with all the way through the book and had touched, it touches on in every single chapter of the book, but now he gives this topic his undivided attention for 12 verses. So we're going to talk this morning about the tongue. We're going to talk this morning about this thing right here and the trouble that it can get us into, the damage that it can do, the blessings that it can bestow on people. We're going to talk about those things together this morning. So James chapter 3, verse number 1 through verse number 12. Read with me this morning, if you will. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, and they obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large, they are driven by fierce winds, and yet they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Let's pray. Father, we pause before you this morning asking for your blessings, 
asking for you to meet with us again during this time, that this would be much more than just a time where we gather together and listen to a sermon. But Father, this would be a time where we are challenged, where we are convicted, where Father, we are laid before you in such a way um, that all is seen by ourselves and by you. And that, Father, we examine ourselves, we take inventory, that, Lord, we're challenged in that, and that your Spirit would meet with us to cleanse, to forgive, to rejuvenate, and to repower, and that, God, you do great things in us and through us. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. How powerful is the tongue? We like to believe. We really, I think, want to believe. As a defense mechanism, we try to influence our kids to believe that the tongue really doesn't do a whole lot and that what comes out are just words and words don't really hurt us. We sing these silly little songs. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they will never hurt me. And that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And every one of us knows it, and yet we sing such silly things. It might be true that we should be like a duck where the water can just roll off of our back. It might be true that we should be able, and at times are able, to let people say things to us and not let it hurt us by just trusting God or something like that. But if we're honest with each other this morning, I would suggest that probably everybody in this room, the good and the bad of our life, we can trace back to someone in our lives speaking to us in certain ways. Perhaps your greatest insecurities are wrapped up in and revolve around a memory of a deep, deep wound where someone said something to you that they shouldn't have said. Maybe your greatest victories, your greatest strengths in this life come from places and times where people came alongside you And they built you up and they lifted you up and they praised you and they encouraged you and they edified you with their words and it bolstered you and gave you strength and it was a turning point in your life. I can give testimony in both directions of that type of thing in my own life. Folks, the truth of the matter of it is what we do with our words is incredibly powerful stuff. It's not just that we build up people or hurt people. There are major aspects of reality that move and change and shuffle about simply because of words. There's no switch, there's no mechanism, there's no lever that gets pulled that makes these things happen. Rather, it's just simply the speaking of certain words that will bring realities into existence. And so no wonder, therefore, the tongue is something that is often a focal point in the Scriptures. In the book of James, for example, he brings it up in every single chapter. James chapter 1, verse 19 and 26. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 3, well, these whole 12 verses, all the way through up through 12. In chapter 4, verse 11, and in chapter 5, verse number 12. In all five chapters, James deals with it. In the Gospels, Jesus talked often about it. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 36. Chapter 15, verse 19. Mark chapter 7, verse number 20 through 23. That's just a small sampling of where Jesus would talk about it. In the Old Testament, we find the, the psalmists and the Proverbs talking about it often. Psalm 23 or 34, verse number 13. Psalm 39, verse number 1. Proverbs chapter 17, verse number 20. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse number 28. You're saying, slow down and read some of them. I will. Now, here's what I want you to see. The tongue is a powerful, powerful little entity. With this thing, we have the ability to crush people like a gnat, or we have the ability to speak life into them 
and do something positively and revolutionary in their life. Therefore, be a good steward of this. And yet, now here's the challenge. That may be the reality, but here's the challenge. What James wants us to see here is that, well, you know what? You can do a lot of other duties, a lot of other spiritual activities far more successfully and far more quickly and easily than you can tame this thing right here. This is, as he's going to show us, the test of all tests. You can conquer everything else and still have a foul mouth. And I'm not talking about saying bad words. I'm talking about just being the kind of person that uses this thing improperly. You could accomplish so very, very much and yet still get it all wrong with this thing right here. And yet what he wants us to see is that if you ever do get to the place where you reel this thing in, then you have probably reeled in everything else in your life. The test of all tests, right here, the tongue. So what do we want to see here? Number one, I want you to see this. The tongue brings judgment on those who teach. He starts off in verse number one with, well, in the whole of verse one through 12, he's going to talk to us about the tongue broadly, but it seems somewhat random and off subject, if you will, that in verse number one here, he starts off by talking about the teachers. Those would be the the rabbis, or in our world, the preachers and the proclaimers, those who would stand before the people of God, the family of God, and instruct them in the Word. He gives a warning to them, or He gives a warning to the masses. He gives a warning to the congregation. Because in in a body like this, there's probably this situation. Those who God has called into this kind of ministry, those who God hasn't called into that particular kind of ministry, let me clarify, doesn't mean that you're not called to some kind of ministry. just means maybe that's not your particular gifting. And then there are some of you in this room and you're thinking about it. You feel a sense of calling. You feel a sense of pulling on your heart and on your life. Is, Is that what God would have me to do? Maybe what God's calling me to do looks a lot like what Jamie's doing right now, or maybe not quite like that, but something like that. James would say, be careful. James would say, don't let there be many of you that do that. Don't wish for this. Don't seek for this. Don't line up for this. Don't jockey for position for this. Why? Because you're going to receive the stricter judgment. In other words, look, all of us will die one day and stand before God and give an account for our lives, and there will be a judgment of sorts that's there. We will be weighed and measured. What we've done and what we will have given ourselves to in the course of our life will then be facing the heat, and it will either burn up like wood, hay, and stubble, or it will be, it will be, it will be solidified. It will become pure. It will be made clear, something like gold, silver, or precious stones. In other words, what we do one day will be weighed and measured. It will be decided that way as to whether or not it has any real value. And that's not a, that's not a real happy thought, is it? You know, that's a, that's a sobering reality. It's a reality that causes us to remember to fear the Lord. But this is what James is saying. For those of us who have been called and then walk in obedience and take up this task to be a teacher, there is a, well, stricter judgment for us. Why? Because perhaps more so than most people, my words carry a weight. With my words, I can crush someone. And with my words, I can speak life into them in ways that nobody else can. You know, I realize this in my own life. When I look back through my own life, there have been people that spoke to me in certain ways that absolutely broke me. I was already by the fourth grade known as one of the dummies in the class because I couldn't read. 
I'd failed two grades. I was picked on as being stupid and other things like that. I already sort of had that self-image of myself. So you can imagine what it was like for me in the fourth grade when my teacher looked at me in front of my entire class and shook her fist in my face or finger in my face and said, "You're just so stupid." I'm telling you, man, I was done. I was completely done with ac- not just academics. I mean, for that point for- from that point forward, I never I never did anything else. I never I never tried again. I-, I didn't do anything other than cheat to get through from that point forward. And it wasn't just in academics that I did that in. I mean, it was just like give up completely at this point and turn to other things, the drugs and the alcohol and all the stuff that would follow in my life. How did I get here then? I mean, if that one little statement could so solidify me, could so crush me and break me, how did I get here? Well, I got saved. I came to faith in Jesus Christ and immediately fell in love with Christ and began feeling and sensing this overwhelming burden and calling to preach and to proclaim. And I didn't know what to do with that. What does that mean? And people that were counseling me and mentoring me and pouring into me started talking about this strange thing called seminary. (laughs) And now I'm the president of one. And so, you know, here we are. Seminary? What is seminary? It's a graduate program. I didn't know the difference between undergraduate and graduate programs. What is a graduate program? Well, it's after college. Whoa, time out. What do you mean after college? You mean I got to do that, but to do that, I got to go to college? I had no plans to go to college, y'all, because that was my background. So anyway, I can tell you lots about the story. God begins to do a work. I, I, unavoidably, I tried everything I had in my power to, to dodge this and try to figure out another way that I could get there. But no, this is what the Lord had for me. So, okay, I do it. And I go about this path, and I can remember I'm in my junior year in college I'm down at Tacoa Falls College. I remember sitting there in a theology class. I'd done two years at a little junior college to turn my grades around. God did great things there. Went down to Tacoa Falls College, biblical studies, and I'm sitting in a theology class. And you can imagine just how much fun I'm having as a a guy passionately in love with Jesus, learning theology. I mean, this is great. Like, wow, people actually get to do this stuff. And I was that kid in class that asked a lot of questions. I don't think I was that kid that was like super annoying, but I was certainly one of those kids in class that would ask a lot of questions. And, you know, the, the professor could count on the fact that do is going to interact with me during class. I had lots of questions. And I can remember, this was John Tal Murphy. I'll say his name, John Tal Murphy. John Tal Murphy was this older gentleman. He's probably in his late 60s, early 70s at this point. And all these college kids, I'm telling you, he was the coolest person on campus. Everybody adored and esteemed John Tal Murphy. The guys all wanted to be like John Tal Murphy. The girls wanted to marry someone that would eventually be like John Tal Murphy. I mean, he was just the ultimate cool guy and wickedly smart. I mean, brilliant guy. We esteemed this guy so very highly. And his stock in our eyes was enormous. And I can remember he would teach and we'd ask these questions. And I remember when he would answer the questions, he'd take your question like this. And then he would turn and he'd look out the window and he would just sit there and stare out the window as he answered your questions. This is what he did. And so I've asked a whole bunch of questions throughout the semester. On this particular day, I must have asked a couple questions already. I ask my question. He turns. He begins to answer my question as he looks out the window. And then right in the middle of his answer, he did something he'd never done. He stopped dead in his tracks. And he turned and looked at me and pointed at me. And he said, you have quite the theological mind. What? I was mortified. 
I was horrified that he had said that. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, what? Oh man, this is weird. I didn't know what to do. I had never in my life had anybody recognize an intellectual ability at all. And I am telling you, it is a game changer. It was an, for the first time ever, I was free. I was dared to think. I was dared to wonder, could God, maybe could God be doing something like that in me? And it was a turning point in my life. And here we are. With the tongue, a teacher can crush someone. With the tongue, a teacher can build someone up. You know, I began to realize this in my own life when I was the dean of the college at Southeastern. Man, there were kids... I. They would come into my office and they would seek my wisdom and my advice. And I, you know, I could say to them, man, you really need to break up with that girl. And they do it. It was the strangest thing. They, they would actually listen to what I'd say to do. They sought my counsel and my advice. You can imagine, therefore, in class when Dr. Do, the dean, the guy that they all revered, would be critical of something they would say. Man, it would, it would rattle them in deep, deep ways. You can imagine, therefore how it is that when I would come along and say something like, wow, that's really good. You've done well here. You can imagine how it lifts them up. And I, and I began to realize my words have incredible power. My words have incredible power because of the seat that we sit in and the influence that teachers have. But we have incredible power too because people are looking to us for truth. I mean, people are looking to us in these moments. Guide us in this. Help us to see properly and understand properly. And therefore, if you get it wrong, wow, what judgment we will face. In the book of Galatians, chapter 1, for example, the Apostle Paul would say this, If any man preaches a gospel other than the one we preach to him, let them be accursed. There's a, there's a pressure here. There's a judgment here. With the tongue, it brings judgment to those who teach. Brothers, sisters, those of you aspiring in the Word of God to be teachers of the Word, to proclaim the Word of God, I just set verse 1 before you as a warning and as a caution. I mean, there is, if God is calling you to it, then you must be obedient. But like Jesus says on so many occasions, you better count the cost. You never put your hand to the plow and try to look back. You don't start building the building before you've taken inventory of what's involved here. Be, do your due diligence and understand that there is a greater judgment for you if you do this. Psalm 39, verse number 1. Therefore, the prayer of the psalmist to guide us in the way we use our tongue. I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Number two, the tongue not only brings judgment on those who teach, the tongue directs a man's path. This is interesting. I think that there's a, a sense in which we grab what James is saying here, but there's also a sense in which we may miss what he says. With the tongue, it directs a man's path or a woman's path. In other words, here's what I want you to see. What, what James is now going to show us is there are real things that actually happen in reality. Without levers, pulleys, machines, or any other things, non-physical things like words actually make reality start moving in certain ways. Watch what he says in verse number 3. Verse number 3, indeed, we put bits in the horse's mouth and it obeys us. 
and we t- it turns his whole body. Look at the ships, although they're so large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by, very small, by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. In other words, with this little thing right here, we can make stuff happen. Right? We can move things around in reality. You say, Not, what do you mean? That's weird. That's strange. Think about the big, 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 big stuff that happens in our life without machines, levers, or pulleys. But it happens rather with words. You stand at an altar, staring her in the face. You exchange rings and you say things like, I take you to be my wedded wife. In sickness and in health, in rich for richer, for poorer. It's all words, y'all. And yet two people become one flesh with levers, pulleys, sewing kits. No. Words. Your marriage is based off of a, a covenant that, co- that happens and takes place within words. A vow that we take with each other. A major thing in your life happens with words. Oh, the opposite is also true. Divorce happens with words. There's no knives involved, at least Lord willing. It's words that bring two people together as one, and it's words that rip two people apart. Think about a president of the United States being sworn in. What is it that actually makes him the president? There's the election and all that stuff. But after the election, he's simply the president-elect. He's not actually the president yet, right? That doesn't happen until later in the month of January. He stands there before the whole country with his hand on a Bible with the chief justice. And he speaks 21 words, I believe it is. Maybe don't quote me on the exact number. But it's, it's a very small set of numbers. And when he speaks those words, he becomes... The President of the United States. Wow. Think about offering a job to someone. Think about accepting a job. Here's what I want you to see. There's big stuff that happens with the tongue, right? It's not, it's not all physical stuff in this world that moves the furniture of reality around. Words bring things into existence. Our God Himself did that, right? He spoke a word and reality comes into existence. Here, here's, uh, this is not a health and wealth thing. I, I'm not saying you speak your realities into existence, but I am saying there's real, big, and important things that happen in our lives with the use of this tongue. Therefore, we need to guard this tongue and disciple this tongue with everything we have. The book of Proverbs says this, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 20. By the way, I'm referencing now some of those passages of Scripture I quickly went over, okay? Proverbs 17, verse 20, listen to this. He who has a deceitful heart finds no good, and he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. He who has a perverse tongue, that does not just mean you say crude things with it. It means that you misuse this thing. You bear false witness. You lie, you slander. You use this thing properly and you fall into evil. Third thing I want you to see here this morning. Not only does the tongue bring judgment to those who teach and the tongue directs a man's path. Thirdly, 
the tongue brings destruction into our lives. So this would be a natural follow-up to that last point. The tongue directs our path and makes big things happen in our lives. Well, not surprisingly then, some of those big things are destruction, aren't they? The tongue brings destruction into our lives. Verse number 6 through verse number 8 uh, the, the, James here now gives us a variety of examples or illustrations to help us see the trouble that this thing can bring us into. Verse number six, or it starts in verse number five. Even so, the beast, uh, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? He's illustrating the trouble, the, the heaping piles of trouble that can come with this little bitty thing. He illustrates it and likens it to a little flame that sets the forest on fire. Was a little boy, I mean, my goodness, we used to love to play with fire. Uh, we were little pyromaniacs, our, me and my buddies were. We would go in the wood, we, we called it burning. I don't know why we just thought this was a thing to do, but we'd go out in the woods and we'd, we'd build a fire and then we'd put the fire out and we'd go on with our lives. I remember on one particular occasion we had done this. We made a little small fire there in the, in the, in the woods. We didn't think much of it. We put it all out and everything. We jumped on our bikes. We went across the neighborhood and played for a couple hours doing who knows what else, playing football or basketball or swimming in somebody's pool or doing whatever else. We circled back around that part of the neighborhood just a few hours later. And as we drove by that little part of the woods where we'd made a little, little fire, all of a sudden, y'all, I'm telling you, there was a charred section of those woods the size of that whole section of pews over there. And needless to say... We freaked out. We were scared to death because of the great fire that evidently we had caused. Evidently it didn't catch on fire all the way, but it had just gently smoldered through the entire section. The trees were still green, but the ground was black everywhere you went. James is saying, you know what? The tongue is that way too. Verse 6, tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. That is to say it brings in just a whole heaping pile of sin and trouble and difficulty. The tongue is so set amongst the members that it defiles the whole body. Now here's what he means by that. He doesn't, he's not saying that, man, if you say something wrong, you do something wrong, all of a sudden cancer is going to pop up in your left arm. That's not what he means. Here's what he means by this. You say the wrong thing. You say something hurtful. You say something rude. You say something obnoxious. You act like a donkey. How? With this. And what do the people think of you? Do they now think of you? Oh, he's a great guy. He says terrible things. But he's a great guy. No. They don't compartmentalize you that way. They don't say, oh, he's good with this and that and the other, but he just says really mean, hurtful things. No. They simply say, he's a jerk. He, the whole thing, is a jerk. She's a pill. Whatever else. This is what I want you to say. You, you use this wrong, they think all of you is wrong. And you know what? There's some sense in which that's right. Jesus is going to indicate to us that what's coming up here is actually something that's down in there anyway. Right? So, it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire, James says here, the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Now, what does that mean? Is he just talking smack here? No. He wants us to understand where the influence is coming from that's driving the misuse of this tongue. Look, the enemy knows 
full well the power of your tongue. He knows the power and the impact that He can have in and through you by getting you to say the wrong things. And so what does He do? He influences us. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature is tamed by mankind and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. James wants us to see here not only that the tongue has this great capacity and power to hurt and to injure, but that, hey, that's one thing to realize that. The second part's the hard part. Okay, now that you're convicted about it, now that you're feeling like, okay, yeah, I really need to work on this thing. Okay, here comes the hard part. Actually control it now. He says, man, you can train little birds, you can train monkeys, you can train elephants, you can train dogs, you can train all these other animals, but this is hard to train. It's unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and we curse men. My goodness, what James wants us to see here is that the tongue has tremendous power. Listen to what the, the Bible says in some other places here real quick. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 through 37. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, listen to this. So again, he wants us to see that what ultimately comes up is what is down in here. So... Therefore, there is a tendency, a right tendency, we need to understand that if we want to change this, we really do have to address this too. You can't address the tongue by just simply trying harder and putting a muzzle on it per se. You actually have to address this as well. So for example, when you find yourself about to say something that would be hurtful or unhelpful, instead of just biting your tongue, that's a good step. I'm glad you did it. Please, if it's about me and you're around me, do it, okay? But don't just bite your tongue. How about this? Repent. Repent. I mean, the very fact that we're entertaining these ugly thoughts about people, the very fact that we're indulging such obnoxious things about other people in our own hearts and our own minds, great if you bite your tongue and you don't say it, but man, if it's still in there, that's a problem too. We should disciple our hearts and our tongue in such a way that we don't think those things anymore. That when those thoughts begin to arise, we crucify those thoughts. We put them to death because that's what they deserve. Jesus wants us to see in Matthew chapter 12 that look, what's coming up is from the treasure that's down in here. And now he says this, verse 36. Listen to this. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. Now look, I talked earlier a minute ago about the big moments where people speak. Like when a preacher preaches or a teacher teaches, those are big moments because they're formal and I got your attention. I mean, isn't it a strange thing? There's one dude standing up here and who knows how many hundreds of you out there sitting, facing me, looking at me, listening to me. It's kind of strange phenomenon, quite, quite frankly. I mean, this is a big formal event. This is not an idle moment. I put thought and preparation into my remarks to you this morning. I mean, that's how that goes. And I will be, give, I will be judged on this. I face a stricter judgment for this. Yes. But now watch this. Jesus says to all of us, I say to you that every idle word men and women may speak. They give an account for it on the day of judgment. So what do we mean by an idle word? We mean this. 
you're sitting around the desk and you're you know, chewing the fat with your coworker, and somebody walks by and you just, as soon as they get out of earshot, you, you lob an insult. That person, fill in the blank. I won't even try because, you know, I'll just, I'll say something silly. We lob an insult, a harsh criticism. We slander, we gossip. Man, you know, it wasn't, I, mean, I, was just, man, I was just saying something off the cuff. Yeah, it's an idle word. Yeah, what Jesus says, you're going to give an account for that stuff too. Every idle word that you and I speak, we shall give an account for one day. Woo! There's a lot of idle words, I would imagine, from my life and from this room that we begin to go back and rethink, and we should. Jesus goes on, For by a word we will be justified, for by your words you will be condemned. Hmm. Psalm 19, verse 14. Therefore, the prayer we pray is, let the words of my mouth, now watch how the psalmist will connect it back to the heart. Listen to this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, you see these two do go hand in hand, and you cannot just address one of them by biting your tongue. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. What should we do when we find the insults coming up quickly to our minds and wanting to spew out of our mouth? Repent, pray, and ask God now to redeem and restore my mouth and my heart. Psalm 141 verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I mean, look, this is what the psalmist understood. This is a matter, controlling this, this is a matter of spiritual dependence. It's not a matter that you can do on your own. It's something that we desperately need God to intervene in our lives and help us with. And so we pray for it. Third, fourth and final thing here this morning. The tongue also reveals hypocrisy. Verse number 9 through verse number 12. <clears throat> Watch what it says here. The tongue reveals hypocrisy. With it, we bless God and Father. Stop right there. Just, well, gosh, for a few good moments here this morning. We had a wonderful band up here leading us through singing. Man, we got emotional about it. We lift up our hands. With this thing, we bless our God and Father. And we curse men. Let me just ask you a question. You gossip about anybody this morning? You slander anyone this morning? You insult anybody this morning? You say anything harsh about anything this morning? This afternoon when you go home and somebody annoys you, what are you going to say? What's going to happen between here and here? What James wants you to see is there's utter hypocrisy in this. You cannot come and get all worked up into a lather about God and spew venom this way. It's hypocritical. Watch what he says. With it we bless our God and Father and we curse men who've been made in the similitude of God. Other translations will say, who've made in the likeness of God. Remember that from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1? 
God makes all of this beautiful stuff. Such grandeur in creation. A universe like this one filled with galaxies, hundreds of millions of galaxies, each made up of hundreds of millions of stars, each hundreds of millions of light years away from each other. I mean, when you, when you think it for a moment and contemplate the grandeur of the universe, it will boggle your mind. Oh, and by the way, it's not just really big, it's beautiful. It's, ab- it's stunningly beautiful. He makes a world with oceans that rage and foam and take our breath away and silence us. Mountain landscapes where suns will rise over and set over and capture our attention and again silence our souls. He made a world that's so beautiful and yet of none of those things did He say about that what He says about us. He says about you, He says about me that He says this, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. What does that mean? There's debates about that. I won't go into all the theological schools of thought about that. Some people say it has something to do with a fixed attribute of our nature. Other people say, no, it has to do with your relationship to God. Look, here's what we can say. that We're different. The animals have nothing on us. They don't have the cognitive powers that we do. They don't have the existential angle on life that we do. They don't have the creative capacities they do. They're not worshipers the way you and I are made to do and to be. We're different. There's something different about us. And guess what? That difference is found in our likeness to God. So therefore, what James now wants us to see is you just cannot say, man, God, you're awesome, but you people stink. Because that's hypocritical. There's a similitude between us and God. Verse 10. Out of the same mouth, and sometimes within the same time frame, Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, these things just ought not to be. It's not okay, is what he's saying to us. It's not right. It's not good. It's not pleasing to the Father. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? And yes, I know we have Lake Pontchartrain that's brackish, but that's not his point. Okay? A spring, does it give you fresh water and salt water at the same time? No. Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives or a grape tree bear figs? Meaning simply this, orange trees grow oranges, apple trees grow apples, fig trees grow figs, olive trees grow olives, because that's what they are. And it's therefore hypocritical for this plant, for this fruit bearer, to spew both. Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh water. John chapter 1, I mean John chapter 1 John chapter 4, I'm sorry. 1 John chapter 4 verse 20 through 21. Listen to what he says there. Just listen to it. If anyone says he I love God <clears throat> and hates his brother, he is a liar. Man, look, I, I I'm not trying to be Miss Johnny hard hitting up here. The scriptures are pretty hard hitting. I mean, they just say it to us, right? Can I just pause to underscore this? I ask you the question this morning: Do you hate someone? 
I didn't ask you, did that person hurt you or how bad did that person hurt you? I'm sure that you and I could justify and rationalize via the pain caused to us in our lives of why it is you could get to the place that you hate someone. The, the question here is not whether or not it's understandable that you would hate someone. The question is, do you hate someone? Because no matter how it happened, for you to continue on in that posture is not okay. It's not. And I just say this to you, not only, I think this is what First John wants us to see here, it's not okay for a couple reasons, I'll say it to you. One of them's mentioned here, but I'll give you another one. It's not okay because this is not honoring to our God. The one who does love you. The one who has healed you. The one who has redeemed and restored you. It's not honoring to Him. Can I give you another reason it's not okay? Just for you, personally. There's just no life in that. There is no life in that whatsoever. You can hang on to that bitterness, and you can hang on to that hatred, and I'm assuring you of this, it's probably not hurting the person you're aiming it at. But there is someone it's hurting. In fact, it's probably devouring them. And that person is you. So why hang on to a cancer? Why hang on to something that just eats at you and grinds at you? John would say this, If anyone loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he he who does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he love God who he hasn't seen? And this commandment we have from him, that those who love God must love his brother also. James and John are getting at a similar issue from slightly different angles. And James wants us to see simply this, that when we come and we spew our worship here, but we also spew our venom here, it's hypocrisy. And it's ungodly. Wow, the tongue. This little, little thing can have a tremendous impact for good or bad. I'll ask you these questions this morning. How are you going to use it? How are you going to use this thing? Number two, do you see and recognize that your discipleship, your honoring Christ, is directly tied to what you do with this thing right here? And are we going to pursue God in repentance and dependence that God would redeem, restore, and transform the whole person to the point that even this thing is forever changed. Father, bless us. Help us. We need you. Oh, how we need you so desperately. God, would you be at work in our hearts and in our minds and in our mouths such that we would be fountains of blessing. Fountains of blessing for everyone around us. We may speak life into them, encourage them, and help them. Father, help us to that end, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name.